Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 109, JEDP, the Mount Ebal de Fixio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 4. We begin this week's discussion of the position of the critics, Drs. Rolston and Cargill, with a lengthy post from Peter van der Veen on his Facebook account, edited to reduce its length and clarify its meaning. The Times of Israel published an article today on our technical article on the Mount Ebal lead tablet. They quote one of the most renowned U.S. epigraphers, my colleague Christopher Rolston. Chris, who did not study the actual tablet, and has not even studied the high-resolution scans, is quick to express his negative judgment. To the untrained reader, his brief negative critique, that what may appear to be letters to the wishful eye are in fact only, quote, some striations in the lead, is completely misleading. His judgment is not as devastating as he may believe, end quote. In terms of the evidence itself, and the rational case that can be built from it, Dr. Vanderveen is certainly correct that Rolston's critique is not as devastating as he may believe. But I think Vanderveen underestimated how truly devastating Rolston's deliberately contemptuous and, perhaps deliberately, uninformed opinion has been to the untrained reader those non-experts who will follow expert opinion wherever it leads them, even if the expert is sawing off the limb he is sitting on, and also to the others in the field who were awaiting Rolston's ex-cathedra declaration on the scholarly article to know how they should respond. The critical tsunami that has been unleashed against this little lead tablet is truly a sight to behold. Lost in the whole circus is the fact that Rolston, quote, did not study the actual tablet and has not even studied the high-resolution scans, end quote, though he was offered the opportunity to join the team that did. We continue with Dr. Vanderveen's post. I would be the last to argue that there could not be alternative ways to read the incisions and that all the letters that my colleague epigrapher believed to be letters are letters indeed. I probably have always been one of the harshest critics in the team, and I have not always made friends because of that. Even so, I have received full support by the main author, Scott Stripling, who was so supportive and open-minded that I hold him in great esteem as a wonderful friend and colleague. He is a true gentleman. We should pause here and note that there was no enforced orthodoxy, quote, by the main author, Scott Stripling, despite the vehement disagreements between epigraphers on this project. This portrait by one of his closest colleagues on this project should be kept in mind as we review the critiques being offered of Dr. Stripling in the media circus of the critics, and as a contrast to the critics themselves, who most definitely have an orthodoxy to enforce. Back to the post. 
Chris Rolston's harsh criticism is completely unfair. Not all authors agreed on the maximalist reading proposed in the article, but my work led me eventually to believe that there is some substance to the proposed reading. Bulges seen on the back of the tablet prove that those letters which are true letters indeed are truly there. End quote. These clear letters, when taken together, all by themselves give some substance to the proposed reading. Dr. Vanderveen continues. This being so, this already yields the basic reading, You Shall Die, and by Yahoo. This is followed by an ox-like Aleph, the first initial letter of Arur, Curse. If all the other letters were to be pure imagination, we already have our basic formula there. But then there is the finely incised ox head in the lower right half of the inner B inscription, which is not a mere scratch, but a beautifully shaped iconic ox head of the quality seen at Serabit el Kadim. The basic words are on inner B. Vanderveen goes on to detail other clear letters and tool made incision marks on both the inner B and the outside front to accuse the critics of using their imagination to suppose that such regular repeating patterns would occur and reoccur naturally, concluding with a plea for a serious academic discussion. Quote, Having looked at this for many months, we argued and disagreed all the way long. I feel comfortable enough to defend the case. Let's, however, remain gentlemen and discuss the matter in an open-minded spirit. End quote. And this is precisely what is missing in this discussion. Gentlemanly open-mindedness. The critics' minds are clearly closed and have been since the find was announced, no matter how they pretend otherwise, and in the face of, if not overwhelming, at least substantial evidence in support of the claims of the article, which they do not deal honestly with, but instead ignore, 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 and deny, deny, deny. Everything we've already said about the critical response as found in Dr. Rolston's work is also evident in our second critical voice, but intensified, and given a ragged, polemical edge. To follow up and flesh out this claim, we turn our attention to Dr. Cargill, who is all about rhetorically managing the narrative. In his interview with MythVision on YouTube, Immediately after castigating Scott Stripling for engaging in a media campaign to short-circuit the academic process, Dr. Cargill continues to engage in his own media campaign to short-circuit the academic process. This is typical of his virtue-signaling rhetoric, as he also begins the interview with a paean to the beauties of the adversarial engagement of scholars in which we don't call each other names or make personal attacks. Quote, I really try to have everybody get along with each other. I'm a positive person, 
I want people to get along and follow the academic processes. End quote. As if the character assassination of Scott Stripling, in which he engages freely and with evident delight throughout this interview, is wholly benign and in keeping with his own scholarly benevolence. One need only imagine Cargill's response to what I said above about his media campaign to short-circuit the academic process to realize how very vicious he is being to Scott Stripling and the other members of the Mount Ebal team. A comment from Dr. Vanderveen's Facebook page on May 22 from a participant in the discussion is relevant here. Quote, I'm sorry to speak up about this, but Cargill has a long history of being judgmental and hateful to others, especially on the blog site he maintained before working for BAR. He seems to have served that editorial position with courtesy and competence, but he might be migrating back to the spirit he was known for before being appointed as the key intellectual force at BAR. I hope not, but few of his peers attack others with the same intensity. To be clear, your response did not question his competence or integrity, and neither do I. Simply put, I don't like the judgmental tone he uses. End quote. Apart from this controversy, I do not know Dr. Cargill, and I am not, thus, in a position to make the sort of claims that this commenter does about his past actions and character. But I can say that I recognize the portrait as an accurate portrayal of his character in this game. Quote, Let me just say from the outset, there is no inscription on that so-called inscription, Cargill proclaims, with the certainty of authority, an authority that awed his MythVision interviewer into apologizing for daring to think a different viewpoint might have some validity. The arrogation of expert certainty to a topic like this, and the cowing of others into agreement that results from it, will take one quite a long way in academic circles, in spite of a demonstrable ignorance of the facts about which he speaks, giving him the benefit of the doubt that it is ignorance, and not a more cynical denial or suppression of the facts. We have only to think of the certainty with which Paul Ehrlich proclaimed the mass starvation of populations in the 1970s, the death of our oceans by 1980, and the series of predictive dooms across his academic and public career that have all been spectacularly wrong. Yet Paul Ehrlich is still taken seriously, still speaks with the voice of authority. The Academy rewarded him with a full professorship, he is now emeritus, of biology at Stanford University. He is still considered an academic expert on this topic, and he's never admitted to being wrong. It sounds very familiar to me. Dr. Cargill as Van Der Veen points out, has never actually examined the lead tablet, nor engaged seriously with the evidence or with those who have. Like Dr. Rolston, Dr. Cargill does not suspect or doubt the findings 
of the Mount Ebal team. He knows there is no inscription. He knows it is just a, quote, hunk of lead on which nothing is written. Trust him. He's an expert. This is the informal fallacy of appeal to authority, and nearly the entire case of the critics of this find relies on it. Plainly stated, Dr. Cargill is a bully who flexes his academic bona fides and expects everyone to fall in line. I know the type from my years in academia. I encourage our listeners to visit Peter Vanderveen's Facebook page, in which Cargill carps repeatedly and viciously against Peter and the team, culminating in a deeply frustrated Vanderveen proclaiming, Robert, I feel you are not the modest and open-minded scholar we wish to converse with. It is totally okay that you disagree, but it is also completely our right to wholeheartedly disagree with you. I respect you as a scholar, but you do not treat your opponents as such. Quite telling, I would say. To cut things short, we do not think you have a case. You cannot convince me that the letters on the recto are mere scratches or something in the lead, as also Chris charges, as they are clearly man-made stylus marks. I see no way around that. This being the case, this opens the door to looking at the rest of the tablet, end quote. It is precisely this opening of the door that Cargill's media campaign is designed to frustrate, and by whatever means necessary. The examples I would like to present of my charges against Dr. Cargill are too numerous for our allotted time. But as a final example, I would like to return to his refrain that this find is simply, quote, an unprovenanced hunk of lead. Repeat a lie often enough, and it becomes the truth. Cargill's claim has all the earmarks of deliberate deception that we have traced throughout the Christian atheist. Let's start with its unsocratic claim to certainty, a script from which Dr. Cargill never departs. He never allows any sense of ambiguity or uncertainty to cloud his proclamations. That would be modest and scholarly, like Dr. Vanderveen. Instead, Robert Cargill, like Gershon Galil, is always right and only a fool or a weakling would disagree with him. This is the fallacious appeal to authority we have discussed in this series. Another of Dr. Vanderveen's Facebook interlocutors, noting Cargill's presentation, quoted Cornelius Van Til, The skeptic's denial of his or her bias is a proof of the complete hold that their bias has over them. End quote. To be fair, I know about Gershon Galil only that which I have been able to gather from Dr. Vanderveen's statements about their interactions on this project, and some cursory history of his work. And it may not be fair to him to compare him to Robert Cargill, 
despite the obvious similarities here. An unprovenanced hunk of lead, chants Dr. Cargill. As I have said, lies are most rhetorically effective when they are truth-adjacent. The tablet is lead. On that we can all agree. Why hunk? Because hunk implies a common, undifferentiated mass of something, usually of little value. As if Dr. Cargill, having found this hunk of lead where Scott Stripling did, would have immediately melted it down and poured it into a lead sinker mold with which to fish in the Sea of Galilee. Maybe he would have. But is it an undifferentiated mass of lead? Or is this a rhetorical device by which to dismiss and deny the facts? By any objective measure, this find is a sheet of lead, which means it was carefully crafted by someone who understands metalwork. It is not simple or easy to form metals into a sheet of uniform thickness, especially while maintaining ductility and flexibility. Besides being a sheet of lead, which already denies the dishonest rhetoric of hunk, it is also precision cut into a rectangle, so that when folded in half, it produced a uniform square shape, two centimeters by two centimeters. In today's world of rich plenty, of course, one might cast aside a common piece of lead like this. But this lead came from a mine in Lavrion, Greece, active in the late Bronze Age. It was, thus, imported to the Levant. In the ancient world, such a commodity would be rare and costly, so it is not common, as the term hunk deceptively implies. It was a precious commodity. This brings us, obviously, to the other rhetorical term Cargill delights to wield, unprovenanced, which he uses as a magical instrument of derision, sort of like a curse tablet. But what does unprovenanced mean? It simply means of unknown origin. In the field of archaeology, of course, it connotes an object found in an antiquities market rather than taken from an archaeological dig. This assertion by Dr. Cargill is an incantation meant to dismiss the facts once again with enough adjacence to truth to make it seem real to the weak-minded and the uninformed. In fact, almost the whole critical case depends upon ignoring the origin of this object, emphasizing a partial truth in order to deny the whole. We do know the origin of this object, and quite well, although possibility, if not probability, does yield some ambiguity here, which is the only emphasis Dr. Cargill wants us to look at. It did not come from an antiquities market, which is the implication he wants to suggest. Control the language, and you control the discussion and its outcome. To return to the facts it was found, he repeats over and over again, in a 40-year-old dump pile. This fact is the only claim to unprovenanced he can credibly hold. 
The details of what we know about that dump pile, however, matter. A fact must be contextualized in order to truly understand it. This was not just any dump pile. Say, my neighbors. It was a dump pile from the archaeological dig of Adam Zertal on Mount Ebal in the 1980s. More specifically, it was from the dump pile, carefully differentiated by Zertal from two other dump piles on this dig, which came from the archaeological stratum associated with the round altar discovered beneath the more recent square altar excavated by Zertal and dated to 2500 BC. Unprovenanced? Hardly. Could something have happened during those 40 years? Yes. Is it probable, even remotely, given what we know about this find? No. Zertal and his team, using only the dry sifting techniques common to his day, would easily have missed this hunk of lead, thinking it only a stone. Stripling's team, too, missed it when merely dry sifting. The point of Stripling's exercise was to show that wet sifting was superior to dry sifting. It was only when wet sifted that this tablet was found. Its origin, thus, while not being found in situ, is as reasonably close to it as could be expected for a find like this. The term unprovenanced simply muddies the water here, which is why it is invoked. The most logical and empirically sound assumption, taking the full picture into consideration, is that it came from the round altar site. This is so obvious, it should not need to be stated. If Dr. Cargill has evidence to the contrary, let him bring it forth. Believing that we cannot reasonably trust an empirical conclusion because it is logically possible it could be otherwise, would mean that we can come to no workable empirical conclusions at all. Bye-bye science. Finally, and on a related trajectory, the whole narrative Dr. Cargill weaves is built from half-truths taken out of context, as displayed above, innuendo, and character assassination crafted to play on the discriminatory prejudices of the academic community and common culture. This find, he declares, quote, is an absurd claim at every level, end quote. Really? Tell us, Dr. Cargill, precisely what is ridiculously unreasonable, unsound, or incongruous, which is what absurd means, about every level of this find. Was it absurd to wet-sift Zertal's dump piles? thinking that more useful archaeological evidence might be discovered there? Was it absurd when, having done so, they found a hunk of lead that resembled other curse tablets, and then labeled it as a curse tablet, 
Was it absurd to test the lead to check its provenance? Was it absurd to think, at first, as Scott Stripling did, that this probably came from a later period, since he knew nothing of cursed tablets of so early an origin in Palestine? Was it absurd to revise his thinking, given the provenance of the lead, to the possibility of an earlier date in conjunction with all the other incidental temporal evidence? Was it absurd to think that a cursed tablet might have writing? on it? Was it absurd, having seen what appeared to be glyphs on the recto of the tablet, to study it more carefully? Was it absurd to send it to be examined by a process previously unknown to Dr. Stripling, to have it tomographically scanned, a process still new to most in the archaeological community, to discover whether there might not be discernible writing on the inside of the tablet? Was it absurd to invite Dr. Rolston to join the team in investigating this intriguing find? Was it absurd to invite two academic epigraphers to join him when he felt the need to examine the find more objectively and carefully? What is absurd, Dr. Cargill, is to arrogantly make claims to certain knowledge based on no first-hand study of that about which you are making claims. What is absurd is to assassinate the character of a man, be he Peter Vanderveen or Scott Stripling, on the basis that you personally disagree with them, or are, perhaps, threatened by what they've found? It is absurd to insinuate, in the face of all the facts you refuse to acknowledge, that you know that Dr. Stripling is a charlatan who essentially orchestrated this whole affair as a fundraising stunt for his evangelical seminary. It is also absurd to self-anoint someone so unconnected to reality as the arbiter of reality for everyone else. Our final consideration is the question, why? Of what are the critics so afraid? I can speculate, but the real answer is, I don't know. Who can know the heart of man but God himself? I do not like Professor Cargill. I find him arrogant, illogical, self-aggrandizing, vicious, and dishonest. Perhaps I am wrong on all points, and I am committing a grave injustice. I can say, however, that if this cursed tablet ends up being nothing but a hunk of lead, I still believe everything I've posted in this series of The Christian Atheist. My faith in God is neither shaken nor stirred. I simply ask for an honest accounting. Can Professors Cargill and Rolston say the same if this turns out to be something remotely resembling what the Mount Ebal team has presented? I also do not believe I am wrong on what is the practical end toward which much of this criticism aims, the real message constantly being sent by the critics, which is well represented by this ominous post to Peter Vanderveen on Facebook. Quote, Peter, 
At what point will you take responsibility for going along with some strange and unreliable co-authors in a dubious interpretation of a highly questionable artifact? Your scholarly reputation is in danger. Didn't you ever suspect that the Texas press conference was a fundamentalist religious stunt? Respectfully, I urge you to slowly back away from this whole indefensible spectacle before your career is forever harmed by it. This, by the way, is not bad advice to Peter Van Der Veen. That is, it is not bad advice if his primary concern is not truth, but his scholarly reputation, which, for an academic, really means his very livelihood. The not-so-subtle message is, you will be destroyed if you continue to defend this, no matter its truth. I do not pretend to know if this is someone genuinely concerned for Peter Vanderveen, or if it is itself a veiled threat. But it is definitely someone who understands the effective power play dynamics behind this media campaign. So far, Dr. Vanderveen has remained strong. I would bet, though, that he is experiencing a professional agony that few can understand right now. In a similar situation, Dr. J. Bhattacharya lost almost 30 pounds over the course of a few months. I am praying for you, Peter whatever that may mean to you. Stay strong. Another academic analog is the DEI departments currently ravaging our universities with an enforced political orthodoxy. This is how our science and scholarship dies in today's world. If you don't bend the knee to this pressure and go along, you will be crushed. It is called Lysenkoism. The threat is all too real, as are the real-world consequences for those who value their integrity and the integrity of the academic process. This is the purpose of the media campaign, not scholarly engagement. Dr. Cargill conveys this message this threat repeatedly throughout the MythVision interview. He certainly successfully intimidated his interviewer. The clear message is, do not dare to publish or engage positively with anything regarding this topic, or excommunication will follow. The pontiff has issued his bull and his Grand Inquisitor is enthusiastically enforcing it. Challenge it at your peril. These critics are engaging in a never-ending gish gallop in reference to this curse tablet. As in many other areas of our sick society, we must end the ritual punic sacrifice of truth and meaning, of science and reason, the legitimate children of Western civilization, upon this altar of confusion. Carthago delenda est. Let the lead speak. Luke 1940. I 
am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.